This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. And so as we begin this morning, let's pray, ask for God's help together. God, you are a great king. You are a gracious father, and you have bestowed so many good things on every person that hears my voice. The ultimate thing, the ultimate one who you've bestowed upon us is your son, Jesus Christ, who is to us refreshment and nourishment, who never, we will never end our satisfaction in. Everything else in the world fails to fully satisfy. You are a source of unending quenching for our thirst bread for our souls. We come into this time of Christ, or in, into this time of worship, entering through the blood of Christ. We pray that as we look at worship this morning, you would renew our hearts and our minds, that we might be wholly crafted into the image of the one who we worship, the object of our worship, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in this series, Equipped, Learning to Apply the Whole Bible. We're going through the big movements of God. We're pairing them with Bible study skills for life that you can use all of the time when you are reading the Bible. And this message, in a sense, will be a little bit different than the previous ones in this series. The Psalms are about the topic of worship. And so let me just tell you a story from pretty early on in Jesus' ministry. He's just kind of started as a teacher. This can be found in the Gospel of John, but I'm just going to tell you the story. And he's traveling from one place to another, and he sits down at a well to have something to drink in the middle of the day. It's about noon. But he doesn't have anything to draw water up out of the well. So he waits And a woman comes along to get water for herself, and he asks her if she will give him a drink. As they talk, Jesus impresses this woman by knowing some very specific details about her life that only somebody very, very close to her could possibly know. And so the woman can sense that Jesus is special, but once she knows that he's special... It's what she does with that information that's sort of remarkable. Sort of really, it's a different kind of approach than I think a lot of people would take. If, if we knew that we were sitting with somebody, she says, I know that you are sent from God. Or I know that you are a prophet, is what she says. I think that most people, they encountered somebody who they could sense the power of God in, might ask something who could know special things. They might ask about the future, or they might ask about their life, they might ask for a favor. But this woman asks a question about worship. Specifically, she asks, where is the best place for worship? Her, the people group that she was from, known as the Samaritans, had a different sacred place than the people group that Jesus was born into, the Jewish nation. 
So what Jesus does with the rest of their time together in their conversation is to show her that she's thinking of worship in the wrong terms. It's not about where you worship. It's about your heart in worship, Jesus tells her. So this message will be a little bit different than the ones in the series so far because we are talking about worship and we're doing it from the Psalms, but the Psalms is a different kind of book than we've encountered so far in our move through the scriptures and the big story of the Bible. Up until this point, we have been following the story of the scriptures, the story of God revealing himself and calling people to himself and creating a nation unto himself We've mostly been following that, through, that story through the lives of historical people. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses. Last week we were introduced to David, who was anointed as king. And today, this is all connected to all of that, but we're going to pause the story a little bit and we're going to look at a section of scripture known as the wisdom literature. Now, most of these books in this category of wisdom literature, are in the middle of your Bible. They consist of books like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the biggest one where we are today, the Psalms. These are books organized in our Bibles after the historical books that tell about the formation of the nation of Israel, and they come before the wisdom literature comes before the prophets, which tell people once the nation was formed how God tried to appeal to his people as they drifted toward paganism and idolatry. One major difference as you open your Bible to the Psalms that's different from almost every other book of the Bible are the Psalms are a collection of poems and hymns and songs and they're written by quite a few people. Most of the books of the Bible were written by one, maybe just two people. There are 150 psalms. A hundred of them are written by at least eight or nine different people, and then there's a full 50 that we can't attribute authorship to. Maybe some of the people who wrote other psalms wrote these. Maybe they were written by different people entirely. Another difference between the psalms and most of the books of the Bible is most of the books of the Bible take place at a particular point in time or over the span of a few years, definitely not more than a couple of decades. The Psalms span over 500 years. And finally, stylistically, the Psalms are very diverse comparatively to most of the other books of the Bible. You have Psalms of joy, Psalms of lament. You have psalms about victory, psalms about defeat. There are those of hope and those of despair. And so it's almost an impossible task to say there's one kind of typical psalm, there really isn't, or it's really almost impossible to say the psalms are about one thing, they're about so many things. Except to say that broadly it's fair for us to conclude that the psalms are about worship. Not worship, often like we narrowly define it. 
You know, like where we just, we sing the worship songs, but worship as the Bible defines it. We already covered John 4. It's not about the place you worship. You can worship anywhere. 1 Corinthians 10 says whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, do all of that to the glory of God. All of life can be worship. Philippians 1, the apostle Paul says he can glorify Jesus in his life or in his death. Jesus said that worship starts in the heart. It doesn't primarily take place in the mouth. So in a sense, the Psalms are about this one thing, worship, but that one thing is really everything. Worship is more than songs. It's more than what we come to on Sunday mornings. We call this a worship service. But that's not because we're going through some sort of ritual of worship And it's certainly not because we've gathered here to provide a service to God as though he needs something from us. It's actually the other way around. We are the ones in need. And so we gather to celebrate that God has served us. That he has given his son Jesus so that we might be saved and redeemed from sin and death. A worship service celebrates the service that God has done unto us. When we were planning this, we wanted to pick a typical psalm. We said, how can we, how can we just do a psalm that's kind of like a lot of other psalms? But I already said, that's not really fair. We couldn't find one that was typical of all the others. And so we just thought, well, what psalm has a lot of common elements and themes? Along with the, that, we wanted to find a psalm that highlights some of the great blessings We wanted to learn how to read the Psalms as we read one together. And we wanted to learn how to worship from the Psalms because, as many people have said, the Psalms are the Christian's first hymn book. Then we wanted to pair that with the Bible study skill. So the Bible study skill that we're working on this morning is reading comprehension. And that might seem redundant, It might seem almost insulting because you already know how to read. But there is a difference between reading to get through something quickly, which is often how our minds work and how we're trained. We're trained to take in a lot of information very quickly, process it, and move on. So it's almost a different skill entirely than we're used to, to take in something Really let it sink down deep, digest it, and benefit from it. And that's what we have to do with the Bible. In many ways, when we read the Bible, we need to relearn how to read. Because we don't read most things like we should read our Bibles. One of the most amazing things about reading the Bible is you can read the same parts over and over and over again, and there's new truth, new wisdom, new insight, new propulsion to worship every time. It's true that the more you read it, the more you are transformed by it. So we're going to talk about how do we read the Bible well this morning. And to do that, we're going to study Psalm 36. 
Psalm 36, and so I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to apply it. Starting at the beginning, it says that this psalm is to the choir master, meaning it is for the people of God. It's of David. That's the same David we were introduced to last week, who was king over Israel, who Israel still looked to as their greatest and most idyllic king. And then it says, the servant of the Lord. David wrote 72 of the Psalms, at least 72 Psalms. But there are only two that are addressed that have this title where it says like where it says that David is a servant of the Lord in the Bible the title servant of the Lord is most often applied to Moses. And it was used of Moses when he was about to say something prophetic. We might not often think of Moses as one of the prophets because Moses, his writings, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are called the Pentateuch. They're called the teaching. They're the first five books of the Bible. They're, they come at the beginning. But Moses is regarded and is known as Israel's greatest prophet, one who hears from God and tells the people. And so the title, the servant of the Lord, is most often given to Moses as a prophetic title And so we think that here it's given to us so that we can refer and know that David is about to say something prophetic. There's a little clue in David's title, The Servant of the Lord. Now before I read, I just want to show you the structure. When you're reading anything, reading comprehension, when you're reading anything, but especially poetry like the Psalms, seeing the structure will help you unlock truth meaning seeing what the author intends to say. So here's the structure, five things. First, David tells us about the beliefs of someone who doesn't know God. First, the beliefs of someone who doesn't know God. Then second, the actions of somebody who doesn't know God, the actions of the godless. Third, he tells us about God, especially about the unending love of God. Fourth, He contrasts the life of the godless person he talks about first with one who knows the blessings of God in their life. And fifth, finally, he ends with a plea to worship God. That's sort of the outline of this psalm. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked. Deep in his heart... There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's a way to begin a psalm. A lot of psalms begin similar to this. Now, this is a very literal translation. We need to do a little bit of original languages here. We've already talked about this earlier in the series. This is a very literal translation of the Hebrew words. However, unfortunately, when these words are rendered into English, they don't really capture the sense of what David is beginning to write here. This is what's called an oracle. It's a targeted word from God given through somebody meant to be spoken to people. It's like a prediction. It's like a special word. It's like a prophecy, except it's like a laser-focused prophecy. David is saying... There is an oracle in my heart. In other words, God has put a very laser-focused message into my heart that people need to hear. Something very specific that he wants to say. And he is concerned that there are people 
who seem to have no fear of God. That's what he's saying. There are people who have no fear of God. Now, fear is a typical way in the Bible of characterizing the way that people should feel about God. It's not most often fear like terror, but fear like reverence that comes from being in the presence of greatness. But here, this is a different kind of fear. This is fear like terror. The reason for the difference is because David is saying he's very concerned that people don't know God, but it's not just that they misunderstand him, it's that they don't acknowledge him at all. This is the same thing that's happening and is shifting around us. Statistics tell us, maybe some of your relationships tell you, and they've told us that for a long time, when people were not actively worshiping God, they still had at least some perception of God. They may have been indifferent to God. They may have feared God and thought that they couldn't come near to him because they weren't worthy. They may have had an unbiblical understanding of him, but for a while, people generally had some feeling about God, some acknowledgement of God. Where we stand today, larger and larger groups of people around us have no acknowledgement whatsoever of God. And that's a big problem. It's not that they don't understand him. It's not that they don't think rightly about him. It's that they don't think about him at all. And that's what David is describing here. He has a word from God. And the word from God is not just that people don't know him. It's that they don't care at all. That's the belief system of the godless. That's thing number one. Now part two. The actions of somebody who has no fear of God. So the one who doesn't fear God, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In other words, without some acknowledgement of God, this is where a person heads. There's no accountability. There's a completely inflated sense of self to the point that they almost lose the ability to be realistic about themselves. This is probably what we'd call narcissism. It's really dangerous when somebody is so in love with themselves that they can't even a little bit see how broken that they are. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to ask wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Again, this, these are the, this is the picture of someone who's broken with reality. They've almost lost the capacity for good. When it says that he plots trouble while he's on his bed, just, just think of that picture. Enter into that picture. That's someone who stays up late at night when they should be resting. But instead of resting, instead of recuperating, they're scheming. They're thinking of harm when they should be at peace. So think of how debased this is. Sleep is peace. The opposite is staying awake to plot. 
We might see people do this today. You might know when people are doing this today, when you get angry emails from them, and they're like 1.30 or 2 in the morning. Or you see angry social media posts late at night, early in the morning. They should be sleeping. They should be resting. But instead, they're angrily posting. They're angrily emailing people. They're fuming when their heart should be at peace. It's become obsessive for them. Now, here comes the turn David goes to God. See immediately how different this is. Verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of, your man, of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So where there was before, everything about a person who doesn't know God being unsettled. For people who know God, there is peace. Look at some of these contrasts. Remember, first, the person who can't see what's true. They have no perception of reality. They can't see what's true or what's right in front of them. But now, knowing God brings a depth of wisdom. <coughs> Again, without, without God, we can't get comfortable to rest or sleep. But in Him, we take refuge. Even when things around us are very uncertain, we find refuge under the shadow of the wings of the Lord. There's peace there. And then the last picture. With God, there is an abundant or unending feast and refreshment. Now, number four. The next couple of verses describe life with God for the person who knows him. For with you in the fount is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not your foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And finally, this is the fifth part. I'm just going to read this verse and then talk about them all together. This is the last thing. A warning, a plea to follow God. There, this is kind of the end of the oracle. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So that, that last verse, it might seem a little out of place, but it's not. At the very beginning, David said, I have an oracle. I have a very targeted thing. And it's not just a word from the Lord. It's a prediction from the Lord. So oracles are like visions, but partly they're seen in the real world, and then partly they're predicted in things to come. There are plenty of reasons for David to see what he is describing all around him. But then at the end, he comes back and said, this is the outcome of the vision that I see. When people have no knowledge of God, they won't make it. They fall, they're falling down, they're thrust down, they're unable to rise. They can't even, eventually, a person who knows God, it will be like they can't even stand up. And the reason is that our strength eventually fails us. We might think we're big and strong now, 
but eventually we're not going to even be able to stand up on our own. That's a physical reality. It's the same thing that happens in our hearts and therefore in the souls of men and women. When we refuse God, eventually we'll have nothing to stand on. So what are we supposed to learn about worship from reading a psalm like this one? Is it just that it's, it's best to know God and you know, kind of watch out for arrogance, a little bit of moralism, a little bit of ethicism? Should we make sure we're, we're fearing him? Well, that's, that's good. But there's far more about worship here in this psalm than that. So we're looking at the power and the importance of reading comprehension this morning. It's not going to blow your mind. This should not be revolutionary for you to know that the most important, most important part of reading comprehension is to read. You know, you have to read if you're going to comprehend. The more you read, the more you will be equipped to make connections and apply the Bible. And the Psalms are a great part, place to make connections. If you want to practice Bible reading comprehension, read the Psalms. Jesus quoted Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. And so if you want to gain greater insights into the teaching ministry of Jesus and what he was saying, read Psalms. Another great tool for reading comprehension is memorization. And the Psalms are great to memorize because they're poetic, like songs. Do you remember song lyrics from songs that you haven't heard in years? Some of you, I remember, I remember songs from decades ago that I... I haven't heard that song in decades, but I remember the lyrics. Psalms are like that. They're lyrics. They're meant. Songs are powerful because they just get into us. We remember them. And so psalms are great for memorization because that's part of what makes, that's part of what they're written for. So they are easy, they get into us easily. I want to show you some connections, but really quickly, just a few. I want to show you, I want to put this into practice, but really just a few other tips for reading comprehension because I want to teach you some of these skills. Um, so reading comprehension, first, read deliberately and read in a quiet, uninterrupted place if at all possible. I have small kids. This is really hard for us right now. Read where distractions are minimal. For that, uh, I don't think it's impossible, but I think you should read your Bible out of an actual printed book and not on your tablet or phone as often as you can. And the reason is there are so many distractions on your devices. First of all, texts and calls and other alerts can come in. Second, I don't know about you, but I have trigger finger on my phone. I press the home button. Yeah, I still have a home button. My phone is old. It's fine. Um, I, I press the home button while I'm reading the Bible sometimes on my phone involuntarily. It's weird and a little creepy, okay? It just is. I don't know why. I just all of a sudden, my mind is just triggered to go do something else. And on my phone, that's so easy to do. So as often as possible, read your Bible out of an actual printed book. There's far less distractions. Um, another thing, write in your Bible. 
underline it, circle things, maybe write notes. I know some people don't like that. You wonder, are you going to confuse your words with the words of God? Don't worry. Anything that's circled in red or something like that, that's you. Anything that's printed, that's the Lord, okay? That's, that one's not hard. Um, if you don't like that, that's fine. I know some people don't like marking up their Bible. Um, maybe you consider getting one Bible that you mark up some. Maybe you consider having one that you don't. Uh, another thing is get a journal or a notebook or something and write down. We uh, we remember far more of what we are forced to write down than what we just read on our own. Uh, you are seven times more likely to remember what you have to write with your hand than what you type on a keyboard. Far more likely even than that. Just what you write compared to what you read. Very final, last thing, last tip, and then I'm going to do some, uh, some application of this psalm. Uh, have a Bible reading plan. Bible comprehension will go up dramatically if you can enter in day after day to a story that you're reading in the Bible, to a narrative that you're reading in the Bible, to a type or genre of literature, or to a flow that you're in the Bible. So you might get a read the Bible in a year, read the Bible in two-year plan. You might pick a book of the Bible and just read a chapter or two a day. You might follow a plan that has you reading a few different types of Scripture each day. There are all sorts of things that you can read through the Bible. You can get like a chronological Bible and read through that. It doesn't really matter exactly what plan you have, but just try to read the Bible in, on a plan daily. And if you miss a day, don't let that discourage you. Just read it the next day. If you have a devotional book, that's great. I'm not against devotional books, but try to read more Bible than you do devotional. So here's what I see in most devotional books, and I read devotional books. I like them. I usually see one or two verses printed at the top of the page and then three paragraphs that somebody else has written. That's, there's nothing wrong with reading reflection on the Bible, but try to do that after you've read a couple of chapters of Scripture or at least a couple of verses that you've studied slowly on your own. Again, not anti-devotional. Let's think there's some really, really great ones out there, and if, that, if, if that's helpful to you, by all means, read them. But try to read a little bit more Bible first. Okay, so I, I could do more. If you want to know more about how can I learn how to do this, one, watch the other sermons in the series, two, come for the rest of the sermons, uh, three, email me or ask me. I'd love to, I, there's nothing I love more than teaching people how to read the Bible. All right, so now to show you a little bit, I, I want to work through how I would answer the question I asked a minute ago. What are we supposed to learn about worship from this psalm? At the beginning of the sermon, I, I told you a story about Jesus talking to the woman at a well. That story is found in John's Gospel, chapter 4, and this is what it says. I'm just going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there. In fact, I'm going to reference back to Psalm 36. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. This is John 4, 7. Jesus said to her, give me some water. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now there is a difference between well water and living water. I've lived in three places for long stretches of time. 
I was born in Minnesota. I lived there for 22 years. I lived in Colorado for eight years, and now I've lived here for a little bit more than nine. Two of those places have good water. One of those places has gross water in comparison, okay? I'm going to hold you in suspense. Colorado has terrific water. I don't know if this is true or not, but I suspect to some degree it just has to be. But most of Denver's water is supplied by it's snowing up in the mountains, and then that water runs down in rivers, and it's churned through rocks and other things, and then it ends up, and they put it in big reservoirs, and they pump it into you know, treatment plants, and then out to the city. I suspect that it has to do with the way that water falls and comes down the mountains and is just churned that makes it great. Most people I know in Colorado don't filter their water in any way, straight out of the tap. So good. By contrast, Minnesota's water is terrible. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it has to do with how Minnesota gets their water. Minnesota's water, at least where I grew up in the Twin Cities, is drawn from underground wells. It's more stagnant. It does flow a little bit, but it's underground. It's not exposed to fresh air. It's not churned. It's just it's drilled from deep underground. It just has a, a more earthy sort of taste to it. Here, I think our water's pretty good. Uh, if I'm going to be honest, it's not Colorado. It's, it's just not, but it's pretty good. Lake Michigan's big and it's deep, and I guess maybe the same way. It, it's a big freshwater body and it can churn a lot of water, and, um, and so it, it's, it's pretty good. We have pretty good water. Jesus is sitting by a well. It's a famous well from the Old Testament, but this is well water. It's pretty stagnant. When you're in Israel, and water in places is scarce because there's a lot of desert in this region. Israel has some nice places as well, but you take what you can get. And people knew, people still know, but people knew then that moving water was ideal. They also knew it was cleaner. That's why it was required for ritualistic washings and cleansings it was required for those to be done with moving water. That means you're going to streams or rivers. It means that you're diverting water from streams and rivers to specific pools that are spring-fed, so they're kind of continually being refreshed. And this is why Jesus is calling for living water when he offers water to the woman. Now, he turns their conversation about actual water into a conversation about living water which is a metaphor for eternal life. And to do that, he's referring back to what was said in Psalm 36. So the woman says, this is John 4, 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this, well, of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So if you have your Bibles open in Psalm 36, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus isn't directly quoting this, but all over the Old Testament, in a lot of places in the New He's not directly quoting anything. It comes up. Water is a metaphor that comes up all the time for God's provision and his grace 
throughout the Old and New Testament. So Jesus quite possibly has something like Psalm 36, 8, and 9 in mind. It says that those who know God, that those who experience him, feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see life. So a similar picture is given in the book of Jeremiah. God offers the people living water as an alternative to drawing the water out of cisterns that they dug for themselves. But as a symbol of their hardness of heart towards God, the people say, no, we're good with the cisterns we've dug ourselves. We're good with subpar water. Here, the woman makes the right choice. She asks Jesus to give her better water, living water. She's asking for eternal life, and Jesus can give it to her because he's the same God who said in Psalm 36 that when you're in me, I am a source of unending refreshment. This psalm sets out two objects for our worship. There's two things that we can possibly worship. The first one is ourselves. We can be so big in our own eyes that we're unable to see our depravity. A little bit like somebody who's drawing a small bucket of well water every day. It's kind of dirty. It's not very good. And every day they have to go back to get another bucket of dirty water. Or we're told that we can worship the Lord and we can taste the goodness and the freshness of the Lord And if we ask Jesus to give us him, his life, as living water, it will be like drinking a cool glass at noon on a hot day, except the feeling is we will have and have and have in abundance, never feeling as though we're thirsty again. It's probably better to say, that we need to ask Jesus to be our living water, not just because the water tastes better. It's not even a comparison to say, well, do you want to worship yourself or do you want to worship God? Of course you want to worship God. But Jesus also says that not just does his living water cleanse, or not just does it satisfy, but it cleanses too. And we need the living water of Jesus for both of those things. We need it to quench our thirst spiritually, or we might be satisfied, and we need, to cl- we need it to cleanse us from sin. Only Jesus can quench your thirst. Only Jesus can cleanse you from sin. If you're not going to him, it's like you're drawing an, an old dirty bucket of water every day bathing in that same dirty water, drinking that same dirty water. It's a gross picture, and it's a gross picture on purpose. But Jesus is like an unending source of clean, satisfying water. I told you reading comprehension starts with just reading your Bible a lot. I finished this message yesterday, but I added something because my family read Revelation 7 this morning in our Bible reading time this morning. Revelation 6, yesterday, we're just reading one chapter at a time of Revelation. We always read one chapter of the Bible together at breakfast every morning. Revelation 6 is a discouraging chapter. 
There, Jesus, the Lamb, the one who is slain, is opening scrolls, and they have judgments on them. Then you come into Revelation 7, and it says that the people of God will be sealed. Sealed until the day of Christ Jesus. Sealed from harm. Sealed from being snatched away. And this is the way that Revelation 7 ends. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of, you guessed it, living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I read that this morning. God is gracious to me. I read that this morning. And I said, hey, I'm preaching about living water this morning. I'm going to add that in. And that's one of the things that reading does of the Bible. The more you read, the more great connections you see. The more you see things in places emerging. Folks, Jesus guides you to living water. Jesus quenches thirst. Jesus cleanses from sin. Later in that story of the Samaritan woman, we learn that she has lived a very promiscuous life. She was an outcast from society because of it, and she continued in her sin even to that very moment. But Jesus offers her eternal life. If you are in sin, we all are, but if you feel like I am too much in sin this very moment here in this room, Jesus sits by the well and says, don't drop a dirty bucket again. Ask me for living water. Ask me for never-ending life. Ask me for cleansing. You can ask him this morning and he will cleanse, he will give, he will quench. Let's pray. Jesus, may you be to us a stream of fresh living water. May we not return again to old cisterns or still wells. But may we be cleansed by the washing of water like you cleanse from sin with your blood on the cross. And may we be, have our thirst quenched by you, not drinking a dirty glass every day, but the kind of cool, ice-cold water on a hot day so refreshing, so life-giving. Thank you for ending life. I pray that for whoever hears these words, they would be encouraged and know that they are welcome to come, for you offer this to all. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.